Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast of politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. Malvin Tejo. I'm Grima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Sam Andrew. Today on the pod, we are going to talk about the Ford government's bid to pave over a wetland to attract an Amazon plant in Pickering, only to have Amazon pull out at the last second. It is a fascinating saga that I would say only furthers our concerns we have over that we've talked about, I think in the last couple episodes about the province using ministerial powers to step all over local planning and conservation and the environment and all of the things that we think are important. But it's not Amazon's only appearance on the pod this week because Peel Public Health ordered a two-week closure of the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Brampton, Ontario, as opposed to COVID-19. A really interesting case study of how I think some of our provincial supports have failed people in Ontario as they've navigated the pandemic, especially those who are most vulnerable. But first, I want to start off the pod with, I would characterize as some disgusting and racist remarks made by the Premier in the legislature to MPP Sol Malakwa. So just diving right in, on Thursday last week, Kiwetnung MPP, Sol Malakwa asked the Premier and question period about why urban Indigenous people were not part of the Phase 1 priority group for vaccines, which is an an important question, considering that the majority of Indigenous people in Ontario do not live on reserve. The Premier responded by saying that resources have been devoted and particularly noted investments in flyover communities, which is not what the MPP was asking about. And the Premier actually used the phrase that the flyover communities were happy as punch about the provincial response. When MPP Momakwa pressed again, pointing out that the community he asked about, urban Indigenous people, were not happy as punch, the Premier went back to the flyover communities, saying that Orange had done a fantastic job flying in and accused MPP Mamakwa of jumping the queue to get a shot in a community that he did not belong in. So let's dive into this because there is a lot here. Alvin, can you talk to us a little bit about how what the fallout was and how the Premier's office reacted to that fallout? I mean, I'm always hesitant to overstate things as being outrageous and labeling things racist, but I mean, you got to call a spade a spade here. I mean, this is just so tone deaf and I don't know. It just... It's awful on a number of fronts, and I think we sort of need to recap what happened here, Chris, because MPP Mamakwa was actually invited to get the vaccine from Sandy Lake First Nation because of how low the uptake is, uh, sign-up numbers from First Nations communities, and to combat the vaccine hesitancy that exists among many Indigenous peoples in Canada. So he was doing something that he thought was the right thing to do, that the community had actually asked him to do. On top of that, the government's own uh, policies around who should receive the vaccine, he falls into. Indigenous communities, Indigenous peoples are in a priority group because they are such a uh, high risk with infection. So he would he did not jump the line at all. And then to accuse him of doing so is it, he's playing politics with it. And that was one of his excuses was that you were from different political parties and that that's kind of what happens. And I'm like, give me a fucking break. Like that's be a be a decent human being and not try to turn everything into politics and understand that he was trying to do something genuinely good for his people and his community. And that actually Sol Mamakwa is one of the least partisan MPPs in the in the chamber, right? And everybody says so. Another person also very nonpartisan is the leader of the Green Party, Mike Schreiner, who was basically in tears the same day that this incident happened in the legislature last Thursday, talking about what he just saw. And in, you could tell in his voice and you could tell watching him respond to this that it looked like he just 
saw a racist act happen in front of him and he couldn't believe it. And he couldn't believe that it was happening from the premier of the province who's claiming to do all the right things, right? And they're like, why don't you know that I'm doing this for Indigenous people? And I, I don't feel like we get very much a credit in terms of the appreciation that we deserve that we're actually trying to do these things. So a couple of things that really struck me ab- about this, Chris, is that after he said it, people came to his defense, right? And Minister Elliott said that the Premier was just expressing some frustration because of how much work they've put in to vaccinate Indigenous communities. But we're also still asking all people everywhere in Ontario to please wait until your turn comes and the priority that we've already outlined. And then they asked the Premier's office, does he have anything to say about this? No, the Minister's comments stand and the Premier's comments stand. Like they doubled down for days after everyone else told them that was wrong. You shouldn't have said that. You need to apologize. And they just said, no, we're not wrong. We're going to continue. The premier finally made a personal call that was not recorded and not shared with the public after a lot of pushback that he actually did call Saul to apologize. And I think it's really interesting how they talk about each other because you could tell that the premier is trying to come off as buddy, buddy. Oh, we were just having a heated political discussion and Sol and I are really good. He's one of my favorite people calling him by his first name. That is not how MPP Mamakwa read the same situation, right? He came on after the premier called him, always calls him respectfully by, the, by his title. He's the premier and talked about in a very honest, heartfelt way, how damaging the premier's comments were to his community, not to him personally, talking about to his community about the damage of his comments and how much it hurts the vaccine rollout for Indigenous people, how he still missed an opportunity to call and tell Indigenous people that they do qualify, that they should get the vaccine, that it's a good thing that they get it. And basically calling the premier out for lying uh, about Indigenous people not qualifying because it's just politics and sort of throwing his um, former comments under the rug, right? And and his credit, he's still calling out the premier for racist behavior. People don't apologize for behavior that isn't racist. And that this is still part of the colonial sentiments that the premier and his party and this government has. And that's what this country was founded on. And that indigenous people have been tricked for generations and are still not provided clean water and safe housing and you know, connecting all of this to everything, which I think is appropriate. So I... He made the apology. He's trying to sweep this under the rug. I kind of want to take this conversation to, yeah, he apologized. It obviously wasn't enough. Uh, Obviously, we think that he only did so because he had to. Although, I don't know. Do you agree with that? Do you think he could have gotten away with not apologizing uh, any further? Let's ask that question. Yeah, I think that the fact that the premier chopped it up to party politics and to differences in in partisan politics is telling, right? Because if I were part of the conservative party, I I don't think that issues around racism against Indigenous peoples in Canada is a partisan issue, right? And so for me, I thought, I, I actually thought if I were a conservative party member, I'd be really upset by that response because that is not reflective of I would hope, of the Conservative Party's principles writ large. And so for me, that was, I, I, I thought, undermined the Premier's position even further, as opposed to bolstering his claim that this was just more of a something that was said in a heated debate, because, because it wasn't. It was in the chamber. And 
MPP Mamakwa's question, first of all, was around supports and vaccinations for urban Indigenous people in in Ontario. And to respond to that question by alluding back again to the again to what the province is doing for in flyover communities, I think for the general public again displaces the reality that there are urban Indigenous people living amongst us in in urban communities, and that the issues that Indigenous communities face are somewhere far, far away, and we ought not to care about them or be concerned about them. And so for so many reasons, if regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum, I think the entire week, the way that the entire week was handled was completely unhelpful, undermined the premier's own position. Whether that apology was adequate or not is for MPP Mamakwa to say, because it was directed at him. Like, you could make a policy argument that urban Indigenous should be treated in a later stage than Indigenous on reserve. But rather than engage in the substance of the policy debate, the premier decides to personally attack, as I think... And the fact that he then defends it later as my job is to defend the my political party, which tells you everything you need to know about what he thinks about question period, which is not the government standing up and defending the the crown and what and what the government is doing, is it's telling. It's exactly what I think of Doug Ford. Like it's not surprising. So yeah. the whole thing's pretty sad. Chris, we were having this conversation as it was happening. Do you think there's actually any sort of positive? outcome for this conversation even happening because now people are more aware like indigenous communities are talking about this like could that have a positive effect of people actually saying well screw you Doug Ford I'm going to get my vaccination anyway now that I know that I'm eligible for it I mean maybe I I I, I wish I had the kind of behavioral like policy knowledge that that would require but one thing I did see that was I think a a really negative thing. And it was created directly by the time it took the premier between the original remarks, doubling down and then apologizing was kind of the like, like the MPP got a ton of backlash online on Twitter, people calling him a Q jumper, people like the, like Doug Ford is still the leader of a political party and he has partisans who work from him. And the signal that was sent is this is a line of attack we are doubling down on. And rather than to Grima, your point, as a conservative member, you may want to not be the party of anti-Indigenous racism. A lot of the conservative Twitter trolls unleashed on the MPP. And it like Jeez. I think that does real harm. It provides a space for folks who have grievance against the supports that Indigenous people get who don't understand the history, who don't understand. And it, it was I found it that was the most upsetting part of this to me is like I think that like for a brief time, and it was important the premier responded, and I'm glad he did, even if it was a pretty weak ass response from my, in my opinion. Uh, but it was important that he did because in that time between the remark, there was a growing online sort of space being like, "Yeah, you're a Q jumper," which is like really, I think, not like that was the biggest harm that I saw, and I think creates that sort of a sense of shame that I think could push people away from the process as opposed to bring them in. I, I definitely read some of it as the tone of being like, how dare you question how much I'm doing for you and your community? Like you should be appreciative little man that we're doing anything to to help you and your people out there out in the North, right? Like be happy what we give you kind of a thing. And I don't know that that sort of struck me as the kind of 
tone underlying a lot of his comments in terms of where he's coming from. Well, maybe yeah. just to pick up on that, I do think the like, don't you see how hard we're working tone has really set in in both Ford's remarks and the government more broadly over the past few weeks. And like, clearly the stress of the pandemic is getting to them as it probably would most governments, though lots of other governments, including other provincial governments and the federal government, I don't think are taking that sort of tone publicly. But I, like, it, just to zoom out beyond the pandemic and beyond this this issue, it's actually like the sign that a government is on its last legs when that sort of tone sets in, right? Like it often takes two or three terms and it, it's that sense of we've done so much good work. Like the problem isn't that there's more work to do. The problem is we haven't communicated it better or enough and we haven't, you, you just don't understand what we've done, right? Like, and that's like, it's a very natural phenomenon that happens with governments of all stripes. The fact that it, that is sort of settling in three years into this term is interesting. I mean, it's obviously the, you have the context of the pandemic layered on top, but, but anyway, I think if I was, if I was their communication shop, I would be like getting that house in order. Cause like literally nobody cares about how hard you're working. Like that is never a good message. <laughs> That's, your job. That's your job. And I, I think the most telling yeah. thing here is just around the nonpartisans who have commented about this. Right. And said the premier is wrong. Mm -hmm. Steve Bacon, who is, I think, notoriously one of the most nonpartisan people in Ontario politics, has said the worst thing I've ever heard an Ontario premier say mm -hmm. was what Doug Ford just said. Right. And if you haven't had the chance read that article on TVO, but it's it's just so damaging to the whole tone around truth and reconciliation, the whole like it's just damaging on so many fronts around that. Yeah. yeah, I think you have a point there, Sam, in in the government now trying to defend its sort of good work. And actually, I want to zoom in on one of those pieces of good work in our next section and move in a little bit on a fight uh, in Pickering that picked up over a wetland wherein the Ford government wanted to basically continue its abuse of the ministerial zoning orders to allow a developer to build over a protected wetland in Pickering. The developer uh, was realized to be bidding on behalf of Amazon Canada's new fulfillment center warehouse. And in dramatic fashion, Amazon pulled out at the end of the week on Friday. So Sam, wondering if you can walk us through the, the, the high level on this one. Yeah, for sure. It was a very fascinating week. And as you say, I think encapsulates a lot of the flaws of this government when it comes to all things housing and environment. And overall, a, a huge shout out to Mike Crawley from CBC, who I think did some amazing journalism on this and really cracked it wide open. But just to recap, I know we've covered this a few weeks in a row, but for those who, who haven't followed, basically Amazon is looking to build a new fulfillment center and it could apparently be as large as 4 million square feet of warehouse space, in, which would be by far the largest uh, in Canada. And there are rival sites bidding that are about a kilometer apart. One is in Pickering, one is in Ajax, like right along the border. And the Toronto Region Conservation Authority has objected to the plans in Pickering, which is going to be built on a wetland, but it's not opposed to the one in Ajax which is being built on a golf course. And so the Pickering wetland owner launched a legal appeal, which delayed development from going ahead. And so the Ford government overrode that by issuing this ministerial zoning order two days after it was requested, by the way. So they clearly had queued it up and deliberately did not issue an MZO to Ajax, who also had requested one. So then they also introduced an, an amending bill to retroactively permit this construction because 
an MZO on provincially protected wetlands is not permitted. And then they ordered the TRCA to issue the development permit for last Friday to allow construction to commence. And it was apparently going to commence that day. On Friday, Amazon announced they were no longer considering the wetland property, and their spokesperson said that we were, they were always considering multiple sites, and we take environmental issues very seriously, which is, you know, hilarious for anyone who knows about Amazon. Then the Pickering mayor posted a statement saying the appropriate next step is to pause any immediate disruption to the wetlands, and it basically looks like everyone's backing out. The developer on Sunday came out saying that even though they now have the permit that was given under duress by TRCA, they will not be interfering with the wetland, and Steve Clark, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing also said that they would be looking at amending the MZO in consultation with Pickering. So the wetland is saved, basically. Maybe just like a little sidebar, because I saw quite a bit of Twitter chatter about, about the weekend, is the closeness of these developers with the PC government. So the the developers were trying to develop the Pickering site, have donated $15,000 to the PC since 2018. I do want to point out that prior to 2018, they were donors of the Ontario Liberal Party. So I'm not sure the accusations of like hand in glove that I saw on Twitter are completely fair. So that's the roundup. I yeah. never got money from these guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is such a fascinating story. I like, this is one of those ones that I like love to follow. And I agree, Matt Crawley did an amazing job. And I also agree. You don't need to think it was like some kind of cash for MZO scheme, which is kind of the NDP's line right now to be appalled at the behavior of both officials at the provincial and municipal levels here. Like, Obviously, everyone wanted to open an Amazon warehouse. Everyone thought this would be a good press release. It's like a lot of investment. It's a lot of jobs. Um, apparently, the development charges to Ajax alone would be almost a year's worth of budget revenue, like just in one go for the town of Ajax. So it's like it would be it would be huge. And from the looks of it, just without diving into the details, the developers at the rival sites and the towns were in a full-on fight there were quotes in newspapers they were trying to get involved in each other's legal processes and the question that i don't really understand yet and i'm sort of curious for our thoughts is like why did the province side with pickering like you have two towns they both want a fulfillment center and the province also wants a fulfillment center in the town and i don't get why the province picked a side and particularly a side that wanted to build over protected wetland like Pickering's proposal was like just weird like the mayor had said like we're going to build new wetlands elsewhere to like like c contrast to a lot of the damage as if that's how wetlands work and on top of that like I was like okay is like Mayor Dave Ryan like who's the mayor of Pickering like a huge Tory like no he ran for the liberals in 1999 neither are the the owners of the family have developed to have donated to both OLP and PCPO ridings or parties in the past so like I, I just don't get it. My only sort of take was that potentially it's because it's in Peter Beth and Falvey's writing of Pickering Uxbridge. That is where the site would be. But also Ajax is Rod Phillips's writing. So like it doesn't totally votes don't explain it either. So I'm just so confused here. I don't, I, anyone have any good theories? Like, Well, I mean, Beth and Falvey is the minister of finance now, <laughs> not Rod Phillips. So I guess that means Pickering's better than than Ajax. Just pure speculation. Maybe Amazon did want that site more and then like couldn't take the heat. I don't know. It, it's hard to say. Yeah. And, I mean, they're just uh, down the street from each other. So what did it really matter? And why take the heat for uh, replacing a wetland? Like this isn't SimCity. You can't just like replot landscape somewhere else. Although as much as I, you know, try to do that and while I play the game. 
Yeah. You I can you can develop wetlands. They're just it takes decades to anyway. So as a resident of Pickering and as somebody that grew up in Ajax, this story was fascinating. And even this weekend, I went out for my daily walk and saw somebody that was with their banner protesting against against the site. And it it's strange that the protagonist or from from the activist perspective, the good guy out of all of this is Amazon, which to me, just like jaw on floor. These sites are just down the street from each other. So it, to a regular per- person, it doesn't make sense why there's such a huge kerfuffle. If anything, across the Ajax site, the new uh, casino is being built, which I don't know if that has any factor in, I don't know. Well, the developer of the exactly. casino and the wetland property are the same developer. Are the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the developer may not have wanted a fulfillment center across from the casino. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Oh, that, that could be it. And also like to Dave Ryan, the mayor, because I went to his website, that casino is like his top thing. Like he, mm-hmm. like that's his, like his number one thing you see on his website is I'm bringing Durham Live, which is the casino entertainment center to it. So there's obviously mm-hmm. some politic, big politics there. But also, can we just pause for a second and both on the casino and on Amazon, just sort of talk about the jobs aspect here? Like, great, lots of new jobs, but what kinds of jobs? Like, I feel like that that is just not entered the discussion at all. And as we talk about the environmental issues here, we should also be talking about the labor implications and what kinds of jobs governments are willing to cheerlead for. Absolutely. So yeah, let's talk about those jobs because there are no heroes in this story. Amazon last week was forced to close by Peel Public Health at Brampton Warehouse after cumulatively over the pandemic, 600 cases of COVID-19 have been linked to the Brampton Fulfillment Center, but 240 in recent days. So it was Peel Public Health basically identified a really quick wrap up, a ramp up in the infection rates at the facility, whereas infection rates across Peel have actually been on the decline. So they are really worried about Amazon being a a catalyst for a new spread in Peel, which has been really hard hit throughout the pandemic. So, I mean, outbreaks related to Amazon sites, nothing new. Peel has actually been working with Amazon proactively since October to contain the sustained outbreak at the site. And I think the the new move to close the site highlights so many important things that we've talked about on the pod over a period of time. First, temporary Amazon workers do not have paid sick days. They are essential workers, meaning they have to come to the site in the fulfillment center, but they are not paid when they have to take time off for being sick. Amazon now will now be paying the workers who are forced to quarantine for two weeks. And you sort of wonder how much could have been prevented on the like, just like corporately for Amazon had they had paid sick days. And I Amazon has also said that if you are diagnosed with COVID, they will give you two paid sick days. But that is after presumably you've come to work and taken the risk and like, that doesn't actually like remove that barrier that helps people feel safe to stay home if they feel sick. Second, Amazon has been one of the worst actors in response to COVID pandemic. They uh, have repealed their two to two dollar per hour pay bump that workers received last end of sort of last summer. And not only does six hundred cases of COVID in one place not totally picked, paint a picture of safety, but Amazon, in response to this Peel announcement, has said that they disagree that they'll be trying to appeal the ruling of Peel Public Health and that they think that in their site there's very little risk of catching the virus. So Amazon is doubling down with an anti-public health measure, which I thought was surprising considering their risk aversion with the wetlands but like and most importantly and to your 
question that you sort of led into this with Grima, the Amazon site is Lapeel's most vulnerable communities. It's located near the 407 and research from United Way in 2017 highlighted that income disparities in Brampton are increasing. Less than half of the Brampton neighborhoods, many of which are close to the site and pull from, make below the estimated livable income for Brampton. And it's not like Amazon is known for paying big bucks to its warehouse workers. So I think that like, this is really one of those areas where like this is a this is a company that is not acting with the social determinants of health in mind are actually sort of digging in their heels a little bit and i think proof that potentially we need more provincial supports to deal with economic inequality and workplace spread of covid-19 than we have right now but i don't know this this is one that it just struck me as so indicative of everything we were talking about what do you guys think yeah i don't think anybody thinks that working at amazon's a good thing Right. I mean, people, how many stories have we seen of people getting injured or and, and not being supported on that and having to pee while they're working into bottles because of the hours that they have to pull? And it's it's unbelievable how much companies like Amazon have made during the pandemic. And none of that has been transferred down to the people who actually work for them. Jeff Bezos lost thirty eight billion dollars when he divorced his wife and then made it back in the next month during the pandemic. Right. So it's incredible that they're making this kind of money on the backs of people that they're not supporting, who they're also putting more at risk for COVID because of their situation, because of their work situation, because they don't pay them enough. And all of that leads to higher instances of COVID. So this is some of the worst examples of not supporting workers and putting them into harm's way. Yeah, I just I think that this entire scenario is just so it's just so sad in that for me, it just it just illustrates the abdication of responsibility amongst all of the actors that as human beings, we look to for support and guidance, especially in difficult times, right? And so issues around, I don't want to get all like philosophical here, but around the social contract, but as, as, as there's this force that that undermined governments over the past couple of decades to provide good public services and supports, People increasingly said it is it is the workplace, it is companies that that are the bastions of that that are going to help our economy grow and help people feel secure. And we, of course, know that that is not true, and and we we see it now playing out. And so, for those workers that that are affected by this at Amazon, it's taken Peel Public Health, a smallish government entity, to sort of lay down the law here and say, okay, you're, you're, you're going to have to close for a couple of weeks. There's essentially no response from the pr- provincial government on this in, in terms of saying, oh shit, like maybe we should, maybe we should really consider, reconsider our position on protected paid sick leave. The federal government's program, despite it providing some support is not adequate enough and employers continue to do what they're doing, which is not provide supports. And so we're protected paid sick leave. And so the the example from Amazon for other employers to me is illustrative of the fact that governments aren't necessarily going to hold these employers accountable. And for people, for workers, I'm not sure where they turn to for support. All right. Before we close the rapid fire today, Pfizer announced that it would be increasing its weekly doses of vaccines shipped to Canada by 1 million per week from March 22nd to May 10th. I thought takes. Remember when we all freaked out about the 
two week it was like a two week to three week close like temporary slight reduction in the shipments back in like january yeah aaron o'toole tweeting out do your job prime minister i don't know it seems like he's stretching at this point but also i was talking to one of my friends around is who's getting the who's going to get the credit for this and who's going to get the blame kind of a thing i think most people aren't paying enough attention to differentiate between the federal and provincial governments and what they're doing Right. So even Doug was saying, we just need the vaccines. I'm like, but you are getting the vaccines. You've been sitting on 150,000 of them and haven't been able to distribute them fast enough. But it's all going to work out. People are going to get their vaccines. Provinces are going to get the vaccines. People are going to get them into their arms. And we're probably going to end up reelecting Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford. (laughs) Yeah. I just I, I will always hold a place in my heart for Doug Ford calling out the CEO of Pfizer and, you know, complaining that Justin Trudeau wasn't getting him on the phone. Now that we just seem to be getting more and more and more vaccines, probably thanks to the ramp up in their production that they that they did. Interesting stuff. Okay, next thing on the rapid fire. Jason Kenney's Canadian Energy Center is stepping up its campaign to stop Netflix from releasing an animated movie about Bigfoot, which is about Bigfoot's friends looking after him after he disappears, protecting a wildlife reserve. I like the truly the important cause of our time. I'm so excited to show this to my kids. <laughs> we're going to go out of our way to watch this movie. And then we're going to watch Captain Planet and the Planeteers and the Smoggies all in a row and say, this is what we're going to. I mean, it shows like this has been going on for years. Yeah. I don't know what the point is of the Canadian Energy Center. It seems to be a waste of time and money. Put that into useful things like workforce development and job training and stuff like that. Yeah, I just don't know who thought that this was a good idea. Like, why why pick this film out of all things to be the thing that you want people to get really angry about? Yeah, I just don't. I just don't understand it. And like the demographic that you're potentially like targeting are the same people that would have watched I don't, similar movies and shows growing up. So it's like. I just, I just don't get it. I want somebody to explain it to me, like truly, genuinely explain why they thought this was a good idea. We, we should get a guest from, from Alberta and do an episode of Alberta Loud because there's some fascinating polling numbers coming out. It looks like Rachel Notley's in a good position to be the next premier, mm-hmm. re-become mm-hmm. re, re the premier. Yeah. 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 It, like indicative of conservative grievance politics, but I, I like to your point, Grima, I want to know what the implementation plan is. Like, what are they, how are they going to stop Netflix? How are they going to pressure Netflix? Like Netflix, they've made the film. They're going to release it. And if anything, they like, they're helping more people watch it with this controversy. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's just, yeah, like just total. Yeah. Why they thought this was a good idea. Big question. I have too. last rapid fire thing today for the first time ever, the best rock song category at the Grammys was entirely women nominees, not a single male uh, singer songwriter nominated for the best rock song. I was really excited about this. My favorite artist of the last two years, Phoebe Bridgers did not get it. I was sad about that, but Fiona Apple won, which I thought was amazing. Any thoughts on this? Is this just a thing I put into the discussion guide for myself? <laughs> it, it, it is. Although I will note that uh, The weekend was pretty upset at the Grammys too. For And I think is pulling out. But I, I don't know. Award shows that are happening right now. The Oscars just sort of came out. The nominations. It's like after a year where nothing got released. I don't know that these. Like are these like asterisked Olympics when people are boycotting? <laughs> you know what I mean? Does it have the same value? I liked Harry Styles' boa. That was my only takeaway from the Grammys. <laughs> 
Harry Styles bow was great. I will actually say it was also one of the better presentations I've seen. Like some things like political conventions. And now I'm thinking like music award shows. If you can't actually gather in a place and have people like just like long shots of big crowds of people clapping, it's a much more engaging ceremony. They had like little like private sessions with each of the bands. The performances were great. I was actually the most fun I've had watching the Grammys ever. Like I, I think they should keep it. Anyways, this is the cultural analysis you, the pop culture analysis you get. The reason I know most of our listeners come to Ontario Loud for. So we'll wrap it up there. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Raheem Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.